Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology with me, Tiasha Zaitz. Today you're going to hear a speaker from Australia. Marie Johnson is the CEO of the Center for Digital Business, the co-creator of Nadia, the first AI digital human for service delivery and the creator of AI digital human cardiac coach. Marie has a very rich career behind her. She led the collaborative development of Microsoft's global e-government strategy, led business authentication, business digital identity and professional digital credentials initiatives. She was also the chief technology architect for the Australian Government of Health and Human Services Access Card program and more. So we talked a little bit about Maria's view about AI. How can we make AI solutions such as coaches more human? her thoughts regarding the future development of AI for healthcare and of course the state of healthcare IT infrastructure in Australia enjoy the show and to browse through other episodes as well visit our website facesofdigitalhealth.com and if you haven't yet do subscribe to the podcast to be notified about new episodes automatically Next week, you're going to hear a discussion with a nurse who changed her career and now works in the healthcare IT and cybersecurity space. Stay tuned. But now to Marie and Australia. Marie, you've been working in the AI space for healthcare for over 10-14 years. Can you tell me a little bit about what role does AI play in your life? How would you describe that? Yes, in my own life, both professionally and personally, AI has in fact been a lifesaver. And so my perspectives are not just theoretical or observational. They're actually from our lived experience. And by way of background, my husband, who is a heart patient, He's had four heart surgeries, all up, eight cardiac bypass grafts and four stents. And we extensively use the AI, so the Apple Health ecosystem. And many times we've had emergency trips to the hospital and it's always been the connected Apple Health ecosystem that has saved his life. And so today, whatever we talk about, the areas that we talk about, what I want to really emphasise is the beneficial role that uh, AI technology has to play. So we, both myself and my husband, have not only the lived experience but our own professional experience in AI. And so I think that has provided us with some unusual insights that I'll share with you today. Can you elaborate a little bit further on that? So what exactly happened? What what was the role of AI in all those surgeries and heart problems? Yeah, yeah. So the role of AI really has been to provide ongoing through-life monitoring and support. So one of the issues that I'd like to be able to share is the impact of health illiteracy more broadly globally. 
But that even impacted us, fairly well-educated people. My husband is an aeronautical engineer, and he himself studied expert systems, the forerunners of AI. And yet, unfortunately, he suffered from a health condition that over the last 14 or 15 years has resulted in four heart surgeries. So two open heart surgeries, two rounds of stents. And as a result of that, not only did we really look at what was happening in terms of our understanding of all the health information that we're being provided, all that uh, essential, if you like, preventative information, but it's not good enough just to know to go to the doctor because going to the doctor is a very episodic event. You really need to have ongoing monitoring of your health. And what the the Apple Health ecosystem has done is provide that, not only through the Apple phone and the Apple Watch, but all the Apple Health apps as well. And so to give a, a practical example, emergency call for the ambulance comes, and this has happened multiple times, and there is no time for the paramedics to access a central health record. And even that is problematic. On the spot, we are able to provide his his smartphone. And on the smartphone is everything that he's been undertaking that day, what his sleep has been like, whether in fact the conditions in the environment, so the what the weather's and whether there is pollen in the air, for example, what his sleep patterns have been like, what his exercise has been like, what his heart rate has been like. All of these things recorded through a number of different apps, as well as natively in the Apple Health ecosystem. He records all his medications. And so on the spot, I'm able to provide that to the paramedics when they come. They're able to look at that. They're able to communicate with the hospital as to what uh, his condition is in coming to the hospital. I get to the hospital and, again, the doctor's there have got no time to look up a central health record, which in fact doesn't have all these real-time data. They, They look at what's on his phone and what's been captured through all the wearables. And so even now, um, with the advances in the Apple Health ecosystem, with the wearables and the watch having fall, fall detection and so forth, all that is based on AI. And for us, that has allowed us to live, not only live life with a lot of safety, but to push the edge because we, we, we both want to continue to enjoy things. So we do hiking and we have run marathons, in fact, after his heart surgery. And the only way you can do that is by having this granular level of data analytics that's coming through through an ecosystem like the Apple Health ecosystem. Most people might go to the doctor periodically. And so what periodic visits do is they don't capture everything that's gone on in the days and months and weeks prior to that. So it's really this real-time data analytics that has been a lifesaver for us. And we know from our own professional experience then how to apply that in constructing some of these other solutions so that these type of innovations can be democratised more broadly. 
the the interesting thing in what you just described to me is the fact that the whole healthcare around the globe is uh, striving to achieve easy access to patient information wherever the patient is. In Europe, we've got the European health data space, the hope that by 2025, yeah. there's going to be a cross-border access to healthcare. But the way you described it was as if almost that's not helpful at the moment because yeah there's not enough information there or it takes too much time to for the doctors to access these central repositories so maybe can right. you talk a little bit more about that actually this is a very important point that you've just raised and something that I've been writing about quite a lot and it's actually a paradigm that exists in Australia and I think exists elsewhere to say that digital health equals some sort of centralised health record held by mostly a government. Now, that whole paradigm falls down on a whole range of different levels. Practically, it falls down that on the spot in the ambulance, there is no time for a paramedic to call up a health record, which may not have and probably doesn't have everybody's or that person's up-to-date information. And even if it did, even if it had the latest information from a doctor's visit a month ago, it doesn't have what's happening on the spot at that point in time. And so digital health, I think, innovation going forward won't be about a central repository. It'll be about this ecosystem and about a person being able to, if you like, control their own health data. And the health data is not just about what medications I receive, what conditions I have. It's all these other things that are about wellness and lifelong health, you know, lifelong good health, for example. Yeah, so I think that's a paradigm shift. And here in Australia, there's literally been trillions of dollars spent on what's called the My Health Record. And it's this paradigm of having a central control which actually doesn't deliver value to the to the patient. If a patient or a person has control of their own health data, they don't have to look it up, it's always there with them, then that is a far more empowering and democratising use of their own health information than a centralised health, health record. So I think that's going to change going forward. I don't know whether governments will have an appetite to change the paradigm, and I think that's where organisations like Apple, many others are coming into this space because there is a realisation that this centralised control does two things. It doesn't serve the patient and it turns the health practitioner into a data entry operator, which is an incredibly wasteful use of a health practitioner's time for them just to be uploading information and always going online and up updating. That is just turning a doctor into a typist is, is not where health has to go. Approximately once a year, I've got a speaker from Australia and it's always interesting to, to listen. Where is my health record at the moment? I still remember when I had a speaker, when there was a lot of controversy that the system went from the opt-in to the opt-out system. That's right. So you mentioned your own reservations about the usability of the system. Do you think, what changes are you seeing since the role 
rollout of the solution and what are your perhaps anticipations for the future? Because all these solutions, when it comes to national repositories, national backbones, they need some time for the, the doctors to also start using them. So we also have to take that into account when assessing is something meaningful or not in the long term. Yeah, yeah. And I've got a, some other insights to bring to your question from the work that I was involved in the Health and Human Services Access Card, so back in 2007, so quite a while back, but a very similar type of model where it was a, a centralised model of access. And this breaks down in a whole range of different areas. And the purpose must be really clear. If the purpose is the purpose serving the government in terms of having this great collection of data, is the purpose serving the provider or is the purpose serving the individual person, the citizen? And all these things are different. And so... Having a centralised repository from a provider's perspective is layers of red tape and administration. So people, the providers have to, well, they don't have to, but they would update information into the My Health record. And that administration is a cost to the health provider. Then there is the, the model where literally thousands of providers and points of access to this centralised uh, database can occur. And this creates security and privacy issues to work through. So for example, you might have someone on a ward in a hospital that might have permission to access the My Health record. Now that will be happening thousands and thousands of times around the country and in small doctor surgeries and, and, and practices. And so you get to the point where you've got this enormous, enormously valuable centralised repository of health information being able to be accessed by, if you like, an environment, in an environment where there are multiple points of vulnerability in the broader ecosystem. And what has happened as a result of that is there have been people whose records have not been up where the incorrect updates have been made, so somebody else's files have been up updated. And there is also other, if you like, paradigms which this centralised model locks in. And one of those paradigms is that the records that are updated are often PDF records or records that are not able to be searched or analysed. And so you cannot get time series analysis through these records. And so it becomes almost a repository of records that are not, that don't provide a lot of value, definitely don't provide a lot of value to the provider, don't provide a lot of value to the citizen. They might provide some value to the government who might be doing health, health informatics or health analysis on, on, on these records. And so I just think the purpose there is not clear. And in Australia, there's literally been trillions of dollars spent on, on this and still there's problems with it. So I think what's happening is whilst the government's going down this particular path, there's an explosion, say, in the Apple Health ecosystem and in other similar ecosystems where the 
the person, the people, the citizen is now saying, I've got more in my hands, in my phone, actually, than what exists on that health record. And for me, that is way more valuable. There's also a whole lot of other accessibility issues. If you think about in Australia with our size of our country and our network coverage in some of the remote areas is not all that good. And so you've got a paradigm that says we can serve some people even with this paradigm, but we're not going to be able to serve everybody. And so it becomes a system that actually is not just. And so what, where I think the future is going is maybe government will continue along this line because of the vested interests that are there. But I think more and more the innovation will come from these ecosystems and being able to really help people. And that's what we're hoping to do with the work mm -hmm. that actually we're doing. We're going to move a little bit more towards uh, AI, but mm -hmm. I do want to stick a little bit more with the Australian healthcare system and also the impact COVID has had on digital health. Yeah. Given that you mentioned the differences in network coverage and the problems with my health record as such, what has been the national impact of uh, the use of telemedicine, of access to telemedicine due to COVID, especially since Australia is among the countries around the globe that's not coping with the pandemic very well in terms of access to vaccines and just there's a, a continuous role of uh, lockdowns that you're experiencing. Yeah. yeah, really great question. I think what COVID has shown is that Our system is not only fractured, but there's not resilience in the system. Now, the government came out, oh, I think probably a year ago, with a telehealth policy, but it was only temporary. And how can you have temporary telehealth in the digital age? It just makes no sense, especially with COVID. And what this telehealth is about, it's really only about telephone calls to your doctor which can then be reimbursed by Medicare. A lot of the doctors don't even do video because of their uh, own systems in their health practices. And this gets back to the comment I made previously about the local practices of, of doctors and their infrastructure. And so not all doctors and even health practices are set up for video calls. And so really you're going back to a technology that was invented what, 180 years ago being the telephone, right, being the mechanism for telehealth to battle a pandemic. Now, what the United States have done back in 2019, they came out with a series of new reimbursable uh, codes. So the Centre for Medicare, Medicaid Services came out with new codes for the reimbursement for telehealth in order to drive innovation in servicing. And so what some of these codes do, for example, would be enable remote monitoring. So if you've got a wearable uh, and it's recording your physiologic measurements, then you as the patient can send that to your health practitioner and the health practitioner would be able to be reimbursed by Medicare for receiving that data. So a whole lot different from the telephone calls here in Australia, as well as having virtual check-ins. So this could be like a video, but it could be 
check-ins in other ways. So instead of a person not going to their doctor because, well, maybe they physically couldn't get there or they're a bit afraid, so these check-ins are sort of short check-ins that can happen multiple times during the quarter or during the month and for the doctor just to see how the person's going. And again, this is by digital means. They can upload photos of their, if they've got a wound or if they've got a rash or something they're worried about. Then these images then can be sent to the doctor and the doctor then, or the health prep uh, professional, not always the doctor, is paid to examine these images remotely. So it starts to really upend how telehealth is even thought of. Whereas instead of having to go into the doctor's surgery, you can have the service virtually delivered wherever you are into your home. So Australia hasn't made that leap. It's still bound by these old paradigms of of the telephone. And with the telephone, you call up, you still have to get a prescription. uh, And then the supply of the prescription is equally problematic. When telehealth first started here during the pandemic, you'd call up the doctor, they'd issue a prescription, and then they'd fax it to the pharmacy. So the whole thing was under the pressure of trying to keep people out of the hospital system because the resources were being diverted to COVID. So telehealth, I think, has been shown to be problematic, but at the same time, the solution to resilience going forward. And it has to be a completely different model. Mm -hmm. In the work that we're doing, so we mentioned COVID, which is obviously a infectious pandemic, but cardiac vascular disease is a lifestyle pandemic. kills about 18 million people a year. It's the biggest killer in Australia every year. And we're involved in a number of cardiac rehabilitation forums here in Australia and overseas. And across the board, cardiac rehabilitation around the world has been stopped because hospital systems basically were diverting their resources to meet the COVID load. And they also didn't want people coming into the hospital and being exposed to uh, COVID. And so we were on calls where hospitals were saying they're scrambling to try to like reinvent cardiac rehabilitation for remote delivery. And I think that's that, that will need to continue. But it just goes to show that telehealth and telemedicine, I think, will need to be completely upended um, what this pandemic has shown. Yes, I totally agree, especially now that we see a lot of cardiovascular problems occurring in COVID patients that have already went through COVID. But before diving further into the area of cardiovascular challenges and a virtual coach that you're working on, I am a little bit curious how you got interested in working in healthcare innovation full-time, given your professional background, your career You held many very interesting uh, positions. You led the collaborative development of Microsoft's global e-government strategy. You mentioned the e-cards before. You led business authentication, digital identity initiatives, was chief technology architect uh, 
of the Euro Australian Government Health and Human Services Access Card Program that you talked a little bit about earlier, and you also received a lot of recognition uh, for all those efforts. So how did you then end up in healthcare? <laughs> yeah, uh, great question. The way I describe my journey is being the, from the perspective of the human in complex servicing systems. That's where I've been, whether it's been in my business or whether it's been working for Microsoft and the various roles. And for the, for example, for the Health and Human Services Access Card, that was very much front and centre in the, the healthcare space in Australia. In fact, internationally, because we worked to, with Europeans and with the United States in having some standards of interoperability agreed for this healthcare card. So we really needed to get a very deep understanding about what the practical in-use situation is for people interacting with the health system in pharmacies, in doctor surgeries, in ambulances, in hospitals, and the whole environment around that. So that that sort of extended, if you like, my, my experience across those systems. With the National Disability Insurance Scheme, and I can talk a little bit about that, I was the head of the technology authority there. And there we see disability, if you like, as an interface to the healthcare system. In fact, many of the providers are the same. And so you see these common patterns start to start to emerge in these in, in these environments. With we talk about digital identity. I think as we move towards vaccine certificates, I understand there's some interesting work being done in Europe, but the whole notion of digital identity, I think is going to become front and centre again, particularly in Australia, as we try to get an understanding about how digital vaccine certificates practically work when people have to prove that they've been vaccinated in some way and you've got a relying party, like a cafe even, and how practically is that going to work? But our understanding of digital identity, I think, since over the last 10 or more years, the understanding of it, I think it's changed. How we, for example, with the health ecosystem I just spoke about, my phone, our phones, our devices know more about us biometrically than this outdated concept of identity that governments have been working on for many years. So I think what is common through this career path has been understanding the human in these complex servicing systems because we're human and that doesn't change whether you're interacting with government or whether you're interacting with the healthcare system. And many of the underpinning, if you like, processes and requirements are common. And so I guess just having the longevity that I've had, I've been able to connect some of these dots along the way. Which brings us to the question, <laughs> how can AI be human, which you emphasize is 
common in all these areas as an important factor to successful use and adoption. Let's move now, you know, to the innovations that you're working on. You co-created two solutions, Nadia and the Digital Human Cardio Coach. For a brief introduction, can you just describe them and we'll go from there? Sure. So the common theme underpinning both of these is the way in which complex bureaucratic and health information is presented to people. And so we see the impact of health illiteracy causing massive costs in the health system. And we see the way in which governments provide information. You go onto any government website and it's a complex mess of structured and forms and very complex information. And so what people do, what humans do, is they want to have a conversation. If you encounter something that is complex, you turn to a friend or you go to trusted somebody you trust and you say, can you please explain it? And so if you start from the perspective of the person interacting with these systems, then you see things differently. And so what that's what both of these have in common, these common patterns of conversations that people have when they're interacting with complex bureaucratic and health systems. Both government and health systems providers will provide, will write complex information on their websites, complex information in forms, and think that they've provided you with information. They usually are written by and for expert people, like people who are professionals, they're written by policy people, or they're written by health communicators, but they're definitely not written for and by the consumers. And so there is this lost in translation issue that drives enormous costs right through the servicing systems. And so with Nadia and the Digital Human Cardiac Coach, the method was applying co-design specifically for AI in order to make this complex information into ordinary conversations that people will understand. Can you tell me a little bit more about the the data sets that you were using when designing this solution? Healthy literacy is a big problem. Today, we also have a lot more information that we used to. So as a patient, on the one hand, it's much easier to get answers you're looking for. At the same time, it's also much easier to drown into over-information and not recognize the misinformation and to make things a little bit more complex on the broader healthcare level. Each disease is very specific. Each patient of that category is very specific. So how can the solutions be developed so they are adaptable or uh, usable for a wide variety of patients. Yeah. yeah. The starting point is co-design. When we speak about the, the data sets, so what co-design does, it 
it works with the common patterns that already exist. So people will have these common patterns of conversation regardless of what health condition that they've got and regardless of actually their culture or their language. So there's common patterns that exist already. I personally think this is an area of untapped research that will start to flow from this. And so these common patterns then, people wanting to understand this information that's being presented. So what co-design does, it starts from the perspective of the person and brings that person into, if you like, the situation of being provided a service. So it's not theoretical at all. It's actually grounded in practice and at that point in time. So, so for example, say with uh, the, the cardiac coach example, so whilst cardiac health information is generic across the world, I mean, mostly we all have one heart and there's a specific range of medications and treatments and surgical interventions. What healthy literacy does is that people do not understand all that. And people also, uh, healthy literacy, people also lack understanding of some of even the concepts. So, for example, information about having a certain volume of fluid every day is one of the pieces of information for people, say, with heart failure. But if you don't understand the concept of volume, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You won't get to understand. You won't get to learn and apply that critical piece of information. And so building up the data set is a process of co-design. So how do people understand volume? They understand it through analogy. Oh, it's about a cup or it could be two cups, for example. These are the sorts of things that need to be built into the data set, not, the, not just the technical um, meaning of, of that word. And so co-design is not about building up a data set of breadth, as you might have with Alexa or Siri, who can answer questions on any topic. What co-design does, it builds up depth in a particular domain. And added to that, there are some concepts that don't exist in other languages, such as um, even disability, for example. In the Australian Indigenous community, the concept of disability does not have a direct translation. And so if you're just working on a purely technical, bureaucratic corpus, then you're never reaching, you're never bridging that information gap. And so the data sets are about these bounded domains. With Nadia, it was about disability. And with Cardiac Coach, it's about cardiac health. From a, and cardiac health from a primary prevention and also from a secondary prevention perspective. The second part of having common patterns is that 80% of these are applicable across different health conditions. And so and what this means is having a conversation about uh, how to exercise or how to eat healthy is a common conversation if you've got cardiac um, disease or whether you've got some form of cancer 
or a neurological disease. And the reason why understanding that this is these are not stovepipes of content, but these are common patterns. And so another way of understanding this is a person, many people, have comorbidities. So they'll have more than one health condition. And so they will have these conversations about their entire being. How can I exercise? I might have cardiovascular disease and I might have a movement disorder or I might have another condition. And so understanding it from the person's perspective brings a much more holistic perspective. So, but there are, as you say, quite specific information about some health domains which are quite specific. And so building up the corpus was about understanding what the common patterns are and then understanding where specialisation needs to occur. And specialisation can be about the specific information about your neurological condition, for example, which is completely different from your cardiac condition. And it also could be local variation. So some um, hospitals and some health practices will have local differences. So they might say you go to this area of the hospital or you do this first. So some of these are different. So it's understanding what the architecture of this corpus is before just going head on into building a data set that tries to do everything. So you understand how these different modules can build up. You almost made it sound as if, from my perspective, when I think about diseases and AI, the impression is that because of the diversity in patients, it's very hard to, to imagine reliable solutions because each patient goes to a different doctor that uses different machines. So the data sets are different. The apps that you use might use different algorithms. So you can end up in a huge mess when it comes to the data quality. But the way you described it is that perhaps a little bit more is possible than we might think when we think about data complexity. Yeah. And this starts from the person's perspective of their conversations. So AI has a role in almost every dimension of healthcare, right from scans, having all these scans and much more accuracy on detection of anomalies in scans, through to automation in some areas, which is incredibly important. But what this area that we're talking about is about the conversations that people have because they don't understand things. And that has to start from the person, not from the provider and not, not from a theoretical base. We, we get to that, but you have to start with the person and there is method to how you do it. So it's not random, even though you're starting from the person's perspective. There's lots of things, for example, that we've done and another few examples. So if a person is being discharged to go home and they've had a heart procedure, one of the, so this is not a health issue, but it's a human issue. And one of the questions is, how do they get home? Do they drive? Are they allowed to drive? Does someone pick them up? And so this information is one of the earliest pieces of information that gets provided. Now, you can have that conversation with the digital human cardiac coach and the way the corpus is being built up. It'll have a database of synonyms for the word home. So people may not have a home. 
they may in fact be homeless. And so what are all the synonyms for that concept of home? They might say, I want to go to my shack, I want to go to my pad, but you won't find any of these words in health information. So this is where AI can be incredibly important to bring natural conversations around quite important healthcare information that a person needs to understand. Nadia is a virtual person that one talks to when looking for information. And I guess one of the biggest constraints and hopes at the same time for AI solutions like this is to make them uh, approachable, to give appropriate emotions to that to them yeah so because patients especially when they're sick they're vulnerable so what means a lot to them is the understanding that they can get from the other side some empathy how do you build that in to to ai and maybe you can add a little bit of a reflection of where the development in terms of making ai human or emotional went has gotten in the last 15 years since you're in the field. Yeah, this is an enormous area of advancement. And there's also been some quite phenomenal clinical peer-reviewed research on this. So what I'm about to say uh, is from my own experience in doing this, but also I can point to um, some incredible information that has been peer-reviewed in the United States. It all starts with co-design, right? And I know that there is a lot of amazing companies that are saying we can have like emotional recognition. This can be autonomous. To that I say not so quickly (laughs) because when you are, and my experience in service delivery is that everything has got guardrails on. If you're doing service delivery in government or if you're in healthcare, there is a whole practice around keeping people safe. And I've been responsible for actually, you know, large-scale service delivery. And very often you'll get people like humans, people, human customers, who are very emotional because of a particular situation. It could be that they haven't got the answer that they wanted from the government and they might yell at people over the phone or they might yell at people in the service delivery counter. And you can't have a human yell back at them. That never happens. Well, it does happen, but it can't happen, right? Because everything has to have guardrails in order to keep that person who is agitated managed in a way that doesn't inflame a situation. So the whole notion of having an artificial, intelligent, digital human autonomously respond to someone needs to be really carefully looked at from a service delivery perspective because not even humans in service delivery do that. If I yell, I don't want people to yell back at me, and but it never happens. So what co-design does, it puts in place the governance for how this AI digital human will operate. And that is in those type of situations, it manages the look of the, the digital human. If I yell at them, They shouldn't respond or recoil. They just should be calm and not to inflame the the situation. So there's a lot of thought that needs to go into the co-design with Nadia. We did that with psychologists because we were also providing services to people with intellectual disability. 
And so you really need to understand who are the people interacting with this. Otherwise, there is the risk of what we hear now, coded bias. So you might get some pretty smart people who think this is how these things should operate. But in a real situation, there is more that needs to be done. And that requires co-design. So you get the parameters around it. You have the guardrails around it as to what the different aspects of this digital human actually involves. A lot of this comes back to work that was done on personality. So you can imagine a digital human, say for Nike, might be a bit more energetic or a influencer. They might have a particular way of interacting. But in healthcare and, and with Nadia, the personality incredibly important to be calm, reassuring. They still want to have a bit of a personality. Um, and so you can build that in with some of the gestures in the face. But, but there's a lot of care that needs to be given to co-design so that there's not a, an issue around the safety of the person interacting with it. And that's why having supervised, supervised development, supervised co-design in this is incredibly important. When it comes to the development of AI, you need large data sets, a lot of information. And one of the things that you did with the cardio coach is that you made it open source. So the code is actually yeah. published on, on GitHub. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect? So the aspect of having open AI for the advancement. Why is that important? Why did you decide to do that? Yeah. yeah. So we decided to do it because there's work underway already on Cardiac Coach and with ourselves and with other, other people. But we decided to publish and publicly release all the data that we had, all the, the research, all our methodology in order to be able to democratize this. So there was a lot of interest. There is still a lot of interest in it, but we didn't want to have it locked up by a particular tech company or we didn't want to have it locked up by anybody, which would mean it would limit access potentially to the people who might need it. And at the same time, the challenge is so great that it actually requires a democratized effort. So in providing all that um, IP, our intention is to reduce some of the costs of the development of that IP to people who would go on to, to do it and also timeframes involved in that. So people could take it, understand the methodology, develop their own localized instance or version of it in a way that from a scale perspective would not otherwise have been possible. And so by localizing it means that it has got deeper reach. So by having people in disadvantaged communities, having a digital human cardiac coach developed by a local healthcare provider, utilizing the IP that we've got, but adding their own, because there'll be many things that they add that are incredibly local and contextual to the people that are needing it, which means it gets greater reach that way. And I just think that accelerates it. But going forward with, as we move through COVID, the, the resilience of the healthcare systems will require these type of things. There will be, there will be a backlog or a bow wave of people needing cardiac rehabilitation. 
where the health system's just not able to provide it. And so what this hopefully will do will provide at least a platform for this going going forward. And it's some ways is it's a for us it's a humanitarian approach to to do this. And from our own personal lived experience, I mean, we've, as I said, there's other work un, underway, but imagine how, how awesome it would be to be able to have hundreds or even thousands of these localized and just while I'm talking on the localised, wouldn't it be amazing to have Indigenous personas or personas that are more contextual to a particular culture? Now, Nadia, of course, was a beautiful white young woman, not appropriate for every cultural setting. And that's my same thinking with Cardiac Coach. I'd want to have different personas for different cultures that are co-designed by the cult, by the communities, reflecting the community served, and that way it really starts to reduce a lot of these barriers to access. Mm-hmm. And if I might just I meant to mention before, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs have a phenomenal system called SimCoach, and this has been peer reviewed and clinically reviewed. And it's a virtual human. It looks a little bit like a, it's not as sophisticated looking as the two that I use, but it is nonetheless effective. And it's used to provide mental health information to returned service personnel and to monitor for signs of PTSD. And what this has shown, so this is an amazing body of research. <clears throat> is that these virtual humans have got a number of unique characteristics. But first, they must be co-designed. And this peer-reviewed research highlighted that. It said that because they are human-like, that there is a natural empathy for engagement. And so people are more likely to engage with a human-like interface. The third point, it said that because these because people know that these are computers, like they know it's not a real human, that they feel less stigma and judgment. So they open up more. And that was incredibly important, obviously, for people, return service personnel, people who are suffering from PTSD, to be able to not only have that empathy for engagement, but also to feel that there's no judgment or stigma. And so that those conversations with that virtual human can happen and that information transference occurs. So that's an incredible body of research that, in fact, we're continuing to build on. Mm -hmm. We talked a lot about uh, the potential positive sides of AI, but as the last question, I do wonder (laughs) where do you see any worries or skepticism? The usual answers are embedded bias, just the use of AI by the bad guys, which can also be powerful in a very negative way. And especially when it comes to healthcare, the problem is that we expect 100% accuracy of any computer system, which is questionable. 
So what's your aspect of the kind of the reservations? Uh, and again, I really am curious to hear about that, given that you've been in the field for 15 years. So some of the things that we're talking <laughs> about today, we already talked about 10, 15 years ago. So just, yeah. I love this question. I do. I really love this question. <laughs> so there'd be, I could talk a lot about it, but if I could say four things, um, four things we've spoken a lot about big data sets and on this one i'd like to say that that's not always the case and there was a, a great paper recently published called the dangers of um, stochastic parrots brilliant paper but it reflects my own experience and that is as we did with nadia and as we did with the digital human cardiac coach co-designed curated data sets data sets that have got depth is different to having broad-scale generic data, data sets. So the effort in curating a data set I think is incredibly important and having a data set that is bounded actually drives a lot of depth and that will drive a lot of value. So that would be the first thing. So when people say, oh, large data sets, I say, and what else? So it's not just that's not just the end of it. The, the second scepticism I have is about automatic machine translation and we hear a lot about this and look the technology is quite phenomenal it really is but but there's actually a lot of marketing around this stuff as well and if we look at it from a perspective of healthy literacy so healthy literacy is across all languages and across all cultures so to do something say like with Nadia or with the digital human cardiac coach and to say we can hit, hit speak Spanish or hit speak whatever and it will automatically translate actually doesn't work because there are some concepts in other languages that don't have a direct translation. But in order to get the full benefit of uh, machine translation, co-design actually is necessary. So I just thought I'd mention, mention that about machine translation. You hear a lot about this. Co-design on that is essential. The third area of scepticism is ethics and particularly ethics, the principle of fairness. So you often hear about, oh, we have an ethics policy and the first principle is fairness or one of the principles is fairness. Fairness is a very subjective term and very prone to bias. And so we've seen in Australia recently, I was part of a community action, if you like, around the application of algorithms applied to people with disability. And the government was saying that this new approach would be fair. The same sort of paradigm has been used in a number of instances in the United States where algorithms have been used to determine funding for healthcare supports for people with disability, and also in the United Kingdom, where algorithms were used to determine the university entry for high school students. And in all of these cases, people from disadvantaged groups are most significantly disadvantaged. And so it really depends on, so it's not fairness, because what is fair to the government may not be fair to someone else. I think the most important principle is do no harm because it causes action to happen, whereas fairness, you can just say, is marketing. So do no harm, I think, is a, a far more 
action orientated principle, then oh, just 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 fairness sounds good, but it is loaded with bias. And in the final point was really just about the need for co-design. Co-design is absolutely essential, and particularly in the domain of human servicing and health, is absolutely essential. It's essential for governance, and it's essential for risk management. And if that co-design is not part of the governance, then there will be, I think, areas of risk that actually are not even understood and that I think will be problematic. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned.